I feel like I'm the dumbest kid in my class. I guess I was born to lose. No one should have to grow up feeling that way. And given all that recent research has revealed about differences in learning, no one needs to anymore. Just think of the tragedy in the making when a child goes through life listening to such caustic refrains as, we know you can do better, or he'll start succeeding when he makes up his mind to do so, or she's got an attitude problem, when such statements are just plain untrue. They suggest that a child is somehow academically immoral, guilty in the first degree of his or her own undoing. Yes, they can all do better, but if and only if they are better understood by adults and then help to succeed. There is much that parents and teachers can do to redeem such kids, all of whom possess remarkable strengths waiting to be tapped. That is what energizes me the most as I participate in their evolving biographies. They all can be helped once we identify the strengths of their minds as well as the potholes that get in the way of their success or mastery. We can cultivate their minds by addressing the weaknesses and strengthening the strengths. A mind at a time sets out to accomplish multiple goals. In the course of describing the struggles of unsuccessful children, I will shed light on the brain's challenges that we all endure and see in our children over the years. Additionally, this program is intended to provide a roadmap for parents and teachers, enabling them to observe, as children develop and mature through their school years, the unfolding of important mind functions that play a leading role in school performance and in career success. A mind at a time is also a call to arms. I am beckoning parents, teachers, and policymakers to recognize how many kinds of young minds there are and to realize we need to meet their learning needs and strengthen their strengths, and in so doing, preserve their hopes for the future. Over the course of three decades, I have been a collector and chronicler of case vignettes, as well as direct quotations, the actual stories and words of real children's struggles. For me, these kids have been like textbooks on learning and mind development. I can learn more about a child by getting to know her well, and by reading a list of computer-generated test scores. In fact, whenever I participate in the clinical evaluation of a child, I see some facets of brain function that I have never before seen. In this program, I want to share what I have learned from the students, their parents, and their teachers. It's taken for granted in adult society that we cannot all be generalists skilled in every area of learning and mastery. Nevertheless, we apply tremendous pressure on our children to be good at everything. Every day they are expected to shine in math, reading, writing, speaking, spelling, memorization, comprehension, problem-solving, socialization, athletics, and following verbal directions. Few, if any, children can master all of these trades, and none of us adults can. In one way or another, all minds have their specialties and their frailties. Our abilities and inabilities are tested and challenged throughout our school years and in the course of every day of our careers. We all face the never-ending looming threat of failure to meet expectations, both the expectations that are imposed on us and those we set for ourselves. 
an 11-year-old who has never earned a grade below B-plus on her report card, suddenly sees her self-esteem plummet as she discovers she has a horrible time learning a foreign language. A young boy makes a fool of himself trying to serve a volleyball in physical education class. He can't get the ball over the net. His conspicuous gross motor shortcomings provoke humiliating jeers from his infuriated, ruthlessly judgmental fifth-grade teammates. Some price, modest or substantial, must be paid any time a mind is forced or attempts to learn or perform something in a way for which it is not wired. That happens to all of us from time to time, but the outcome is tragic when the mismatching of a mind to a set of important tasks becomes a daily event and when that poor fit is not understood. This phenomenon takes place every day in schools everywhere. In 1995, I was the co-founder with Charles Schwab of All Kinds of Minds, a nonprofit institute for the understanding of differences in learning. The institute is heavily involved in training teachers to understand and deal with differences in learning. It also is designed to work with parents, clinicians, and children in an effort to make sure that the many different kinds of minds of kids are well understood and educated. All Kinds of Minds has grown rapidly, and I am happy to relate that it is having a powerful impact on children throughout the world. Like so many others, I suffered my share of horror and the pain of humiliation in school. Over the years, I have worked hard to help alleviate that pain in thousands of unsuccessful children whose failed efforts have been in strictly academic areas or else in the demanding world of social life or even in their ability to live up to their parents' loving hopes and expectations for them. In the process, I think I have acquired enormous respect for parents and teachers, and at the same time, I have come to view struggling children as modern-day heroes and heroines, repeatedly wounded by the fact that their thwarted struggles to succeed are so widely misunderstood by grown-ups and also by themselves. While studying and trying to help these unhappy kids, I have found myself opening some windows on learning. I have been educated in the uniqueness of individual minds. This, in turn, has forced me to think about a mind at a time, and ultimately to create this program, which could have as its subtitle what we are learning about learning from children who aren't learning. Since I have discovered, unexpectedly, that the study of problematic learning shines a floodlight on all learning and how it's supposed to work. My three decades of clinical observations, my many years of collaboration with schools all over the world, my extensive devouring of the neuroscientific literature, along with the research in which I have been involved, have helped me assemble a model of learning, and in particular, a model that tries to account for patterns of learning as I see them across the broad spectrum of kinds of minds. This model provides a means for understanding and managing weak school performance whenever a child's brain functions can't keep up with the demands. When people, adults and children, learn about their own gaps, they frequently show, or actually report, a sense of relief, because for the first time in their lives, they are able to understand exactly why they've been struggling to meet certain demands and how they can go about conquering or bypassing these challenges. They can forgive themselves 
and set about becoming stronger people. Insight is liberating and forgiving. Fritz wore very thick lenses in his wire-rimmed spectacles. He was an awkward kid who mostly liked being by himself. At age eight, he was becoming an insatiable glutton for the printed word, devouring all manner of written nourishment wherever he found it. At first, his parents were vexed by his marathon stays locked in the bathroom, until they found out that that was where their eccentric Fritz felt most comfortable savoring his reading. Fritz came to see me because of some motor problems, including difficulty writing, along with some seeming leaks in his memory. On several occasions, his mom and dad mentioned that Fritz was fascinated with gadgets of any kind. He relished getting his hands on whatever seductive apparatus was within reach. In the car, he would studiously detach or disassemble ashtrays, loudspeakers, and door handles. His extraordinarily tolerant father observed that Fritz was much more talented and enthusiastic when it came to taking things apart than when putting them together. But Mr. Powell did admit that his son was nothing short of remarkable at fixing objects around the house. I was able to confirm this finding when one day I was doing a physical examination on Fritz in my office. He saw that one of the lights I used for examining ears, my otoscope, was not working. I told him it was broken and that I had changed the batteries in the bulb to no avail. I had also used a well-established, arguably primitive, Melvin technique. In vain, I had shaken it repeatedly and briskly. Anyway, Fritz pounced on my otoscope and immodestly proclaimed, I'll fix it for you. Of course, I consented to the proposed surgery. Fritz then inspected the instrument and thought out loud, Let me see now, how is this supposed to work? I never would have asked myself that question. Fritz then used his fingers and his voice to trace and talk through the way an otoscope is supposed to work. Only then did he go back and determine where the breakdown was occurring. In doing so, he encountered a loose connection in the switch, which he remedied with leverage from one of his handy, talon-like fingernails. What struck me, and what I never forgot after that, was that Fritz was unwilling to repair my light without first determining how such lights were supposed to work. I have since applied the Fritz principle in my career. That is to say, I should never try to understand and deal with differences in learning until I know how learning works when it's working. So I can't figure out why a child is enduring serious grief in algebra unless I understand what it ordinarily takes to master algebra. In other words, how that kind of learning works. The most basic instrument for learning is something called a neurodevelopmental function. Our own minds and those of our children are like tool chests. They are filled with these delicate instruments, neurodevelopmental functions, the various implements for learning and for applying what's learned. Just as a carpenter might deploy different groups of tools to complete various projects, our minds make use of different clusters of neurodevelopmental functions to learn specific skills and to create particular products. One committee of neurodevelopmental functions enables a student to master subtraction. Another squad participates in the recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance. Yet another neurodevelopmental task force makes possible riding a scooter. A neurodevelopmental function may be one component of memory, such as the ability to recall things that have been seen in the past. Or it may be an awareness of where within the letter G 
your pencil is located during each instant while you form that letter. The capacity to store and retrieve chains of information, such as the alphabet or the events leading up to World War I, is another example of a neurodevelopmental function. As you can surmise, the brain's toolbox is vast. The total number of neurodevelopmental functions, inestimable. On top of that, the range of different combinations of functions called upon to accomplish academic tasks is mind-boggling. In view of all these moving parts, it should not surprise us that breakdowns or specific weaknesses are commonplace. We call these deficiencies neurodevelopmental dysfunctions. We, as well as our kids, all live with our share of these flaws. Often the dysfunctions do not seriously obstruct roads to success, but sometimes they do. Some children have difficulty writing, even though they have lots to say. They just can't seem to form letters quickly and accurately enough to keep up with the flow of ideas and words. So their writing is dramatically inferior to the richness of their thinking or speaking. When kids write, their brains assign specific muscles to specific aspects of letter formation. Certain muscles are supposed to handle vertical movement. Others create rotary movement. Others assume responsibility for horizontal movement, while still others operate to stabilize the pencil so it won't fall on the floor while they write. Some kids endure agonizing difficulty with motor implementation. They simply can't assign the proper muscles consistently. Therefore, writing looms is a tormenting problem for them. This inability to assign specific muscles to operate in the right way at the right time during letter formation is a perfect example of a neurodevelopmental dysfunction. Other kids have trouble finding the exact words they need when they talk. Difficulty remembering the associations between sounds and symbols when they read. Or trouble understanding complex sentences and therefore following directions quickly and precisely enough in the classroom. Each of these deficiencies is a specific neurodevelopmental dysfunction, and in each instance, the dysfunction is likely to interfere with learning. All too often, a neurodevelopmental dysfunction goes undetected, much like an unsolved crime. As a result, the assumption may prevail that somehow a floundering student is not really trying, that he's lazy, unmotivated, or perhaps even worse, that he's just not too bright. A child may be discovered to be daydreaming and fidgeting in class, dreadfully out of focus. She's told she needs to start paying attention in class or she'll get detention. She comes to believe she is somehow bad, 